uh, with me over a great many years. I think it's now some 20 years since we first met when he came back from the World Bank. And it's a subject which he has really made very much his own over that period. It's also a subject which is, I think, central in many ways to the way in which our democracies work. As more and more subjects have to be dealt with or develop an international dimension and have to be dealt with on an international scale, so inevitable tensions arise between the, the rights of, of the democratic rights within a country and the difficulty of reaching international agreements. One sees that most vividly in many ways in the European Union, uh, particularly at the present moment, one sees it in relation to the Portuguese bailout and the recent election in Finland. But the European Union is where these matters get the most publicity, but it's by no means the only forum in which they arise. Indeed, it could be argued that because the spotlight is so much on what happens in the European Union, the tensions and the difficulties to which Frank is alluding are perhaps often more serious in some of the other international institutions where agreements are reached outside the public eye or dealing with issues of a very technical nature but which have profound long-term economic and social implications. Now Frank has, I think, produced a roadmap, it might be called a roadmap, through this <coughs> very difficult set of um, issues and he has also come up, he's identified I think some of the central concerns that ought to bother us and that we ought to be thinking about and he has then towards the end suggested some ways through and some signposts um, that might be helpful in getting us into a, a better position. His whole career has really been a preparation for writing a book of this sort. He is at present the senior visiting fellow at LSE Global Governments, having held a similar position at LSE's Center for the Analysis of Risk and Regulation. I mentioned earlier that I first met him when he came back from the World Bank, where he'd been a senior advisor. And he's also been a senior fellow at the United Nations uh, University Institute in Helsinki. Our closest connection uh, was at the European Policy Forum, of which he was a founder director, and I have been for some years chairman of the Advisory Council. So for me, it was a great pleasure to read on the page so many of the things which I had heard him speak about and I hope that you will find what he has to say equally interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher, for those um, words. And um, maybe I can add my words of welcome to you in the audience for coming tonight. Um, I'm going to talk about my new book, Democracy and Dissent, The Challenge of International Rulemaking. Rulemaking in this context refers to all those treaties, conventions, principles, guidelines, protocols, recommendations, memorandums of understanding that stipulate international rules of behavior. The addressees, those who agree on these rules of behavior and are meant to ensure that, they are, that good behavior is followed, are usually governments or states. But the targets of the rules, those who are meant to alter their behavior, are usually businesses and sometimes are people, sometimes individuals. Now the theme of the book, which I'll give you right at the outset, is we need to start constitutionalizing how we go about making these rules. And this means putting in place procedures that discipline governments that agree the rules and that discipline the experts who are key in devising the rules. The experts need to be held to higher standards when they claim to know what to do, and people also need the opportunity to say no 
when governments claim to act on their behalf. <clears throat> so that's the basic theme of the book. Now I'm going to be talking later about the biases which afflict expert groups, but I thought I ought to just identify my own biases in the matter before I start. And my bias is that I think international rulemaking is a good thing, and we're going to need more of it in the future. Um, and there are two classic reasons for this. First of all, the idea that international rulemaking will help us solve problems across boundaries, whether it's in finance or health or the environment or nuclear proliferation. And I think this idea is not particularly controversial. Not everybody agrees with it, but probably most people do. The other classic reason for thinking rulemaking is a good idea is it's seen to contribute to peace. And this, of course, is uppermost in the minds of the people who devised the post-Second uh, World War international system. They were very firmly of the view that if there had been rules in place in the 1930s governing trade behavior or exchange rate behavior, then there wouldn't have been this drift to war. Now, we know post-1945 that, in fact, the world is that not that simple. Uh, ideology, identity, religion are not so amenable to uh, rule-based behavior. And so that connection between international rulemaking and peace is perhaps a little more tenuous than the founders of the post-war system uh, believed. But nevertheless, let's accept that there's a weak, uh, some kind of connection. Now, there are two basic problems uh, in international rulemaking. One is that it's not done in any very democratic way. And secondly, it's been prone to failure. And my book talks about both these basic uh, issues. Now, I think the idea that these rule make, rule, rules are prone to failure, again, is not terribly controversial now. We've all lived through the financial crisis of 2008, many rules in place, many institutions in place, and all failed to prevent the crisis. But it's not just finance. In health, the World Health Organization has been criticized for the way it handled avian flu uh, or swine flu. And in the environment area, of course, the International Panel on Climate Change has also come under criticism for what it's doing and the way it's going about its work. So one shouldn't think of failure just in the context of uh, the international financial system. Now, the relevance of democracy and democratic standards uh, is sometimes questioned. And famously, Robert Dahl um, said that you should look on international institutions as negotiating forums, and uh, democracy is somewhat irrelevant. But I don't, with all due respect, agree with that uh, viewpoint. Uh, the general conditions in which people live um, are affected by the rules, for example, about global warming. And also, it affects the specific conditions which impinge on people's life. If you're asked for proof of identity, if you open a bank account or want to make an investment or that sort of thing, you might want to know that Financial Action Task Force was behind this with its uh, Know Your Client uh, recommendations. And if you, want to, if you think that in future you're not going to be able to rely on a state pension, but you might want to take out a private pension, you might want to know that your options have been severely limited by the actions of the International Accounting Standards Board. So it is, in my view, important for people to know where rules are made, how they're made, and have a chance to influence them or even reject them. Now, in my book, I try to open up some new areas of theory, political theory, or revive some old ones, and I also want to open up new areas for empirical investigation. And this slide identifies three areas where I think the book does uh, cover some new ground. First of all, there is an assumption that the citizens should be modeled as receivers of rules. An awful lot of what one reads about international relations and treaty making and behavior assumes that citizens are in some way a driver, a principle in the system. Governments aggregate their views and then reflect them in international negotiations. And uh, that's a, a kind of what's been called a two-step procedure. I think there's very little empirical support for this. It's a normative assumption. We, under, uh, under democratic theory, of course, people are the drivers. They are the principles in the system. 
but in practice uh, I think it's uh, more reasonable to assume that they are at the receiving end of rules about which they probably don't even know where they've come from and who made them and so on. The other, the second area where I think the book opens up new ground is in dealing with the failings of expert groups. There is a strand in literature on the strength of expert groups and it's found in the, in the literature on epistemic communities, epistemic elites, but I use this uh, concept to look at the failings of expert groups and there has been very little empirical work done on the failings uh, of these international experts. And thirdly, I'm using two frameworks for the analytic uh, discussion. Um, Multi-level governance is probably the standard framework you'll come across uh, in this area when jurisdictions overlap. Um, and that's about forms of authority, um, governments, private authority, policy networks. Um, but I also use what I call a diffusion uh, theory framework, um, which looks at the actors and the context in which they make their decision making. And this comes from diffusion theory, and I go back to the Ryan and Gross study of 1943, which sets out a framework, and I distinguish between governments, experts, and the people. I think both frameworks have a role to play in looking at the issues, uh, and they both um, are relevant. But in my view, the diffusion framework gets much closer than the multi-level governance framework to the real issues um, involved. So let me turn to the democratic uh, deficit and where it comes from. One possibility that it's about the difficulty of bringing together different types of reasoning in policy making. If you think of environmental policy, one's got to bring together scientific reasoning, economic reasoning, ethical and societal concerns. And this flies by the name of conciliation. How do you bring all these things, different forms of reasoning together? Now, it's not unique to international rulemaking, of course. It applies equally to, to uh, domestic policy making. But in domestic policy making, we have a whole raft of institutions to help us sort out these different streams of reasoning. We have expert bodies looking at the science or social science. We have parliaments to reflect societal concerns. We have governments. We have judiciaries. Now, of course, the fact that one needs this array of institutions suggests that the problem is not conciliation as such, but at the international level, we don't have the institutions. And so perhaps we need institutions at the international level which are congruent with those uh, at the national level. And that's the second possibility on the chart, institutional congruence. The third possibility is that actually we don't need those kinds of connections with international bodies, particularly we don't need electoral connections which give us parliaments or, or elected uh, governments. The idea is that it's sufficient for international institutions and rulemakers to say that they simply reflect the values held in democratic societies, what is labelled here as value congruence. In other words, if the International Panel on Climate Change is working to mitigate uh, climate change, we all agreed that's a good thing, or certainly in democracies, most democracies, and that is sufficient for the legitimacy, uh, democratic legitimacy of the body. Now, the book rejects this possibility as well and it, because there's still the problem that not everybody will share that objective or they won't agree with the way the IPCC is going around its job or it won't agree with what is being recommended. And so this diagnosis leads to the fundamental problem as being dissent. What do you do about dissent in a system? And in my view, the treatment of dissent is the hallmark of democracy. And, of course, one sees this today in North Africa. Of course, authoritarian regimes simply suppress dissent, and so to me, the least standard for a democratic system is the treatment of dissent. Now, in international rulemaking, dissent can be seen as occurring rather rarely, and that is the thrust of um, this political scientist called Nordlinger, and it's somewhat the implications of the idea that in democracies one's up against what is called the semi-sovereign people. In other words, people don't focus all the time, and therefore it's rather rare that one will actually have differences of view to, to resolve. 
But there's another view that actually dissent is widespread and it's endemic to decision-making in general. And this goes back to dissonance theory associated with Lionel Festinger. And I think my point is that if one regards dissent as happening rarely or happening all the time, one way or another it has to be treated. And the question is then what to do about it when people don't agree with the rules. Now there are three main options uh, for harnessing dissent. Uh, one is what I call transformation, and that it really means let's bring politics up to the global level, democratic politics. Let's have parties, uh, elections, parliaments, governments. And this is about socializing the differences. Uh, and it goes back to Eric Schatzschneider um, uh, as his kind of approach. The second path is to say, well, electoral politics is really rather remote and it's very risky. Let's just go for some kind of power sharing. And that, of course, is associated with Leipart, Aaron Leipart. And the problem with that approach is that uh, there's no clear principles for power sharing. And so it doesn't really uh, help one very much. So if one rules out these sort of transformatory approaches, um, one gets to looking for some other kind of mediating uh, framework between differences of views. <clears throat> and here I think the interesting idea is of legal pluralism. That is, one can project, protect minorities and dissenting uh, views through legal structures. And legal structures uh, relate to each other um, essentially through procedural arrangements such as deference. One court will protect a, a viewpoint and then it'll, another court will defer to it. Um, the difficulty with uh, statements about legal pluralism is that it's very difficult to keep out politics entirely. If you look at the writings in this field, you find politics coming back into it in one way or another. And therefore, I think this is the appeal of what is known as cosmopolitanism associated with the Center for Global Governance and David Held's writing, which tries to combine a political conception of order with a legal conception of order. And I think, in my, my view, uh, the problem with it is simply it annoys everybody and falls between uh, various stools and doesn't uh, really work. And so I get to the third uh, option, which is to look for specific governing rules to address the specific problems uh, in global governance. And when it comes to dealing with democratic dissent, the things one would be looking at, therefore, is how to discipline what governments do. And that means having consultation periods prior to uh, agreeing on a measure, having cooling off periods afterwards, making sure that judicial review is always possible, uh, having parliamentary ratification uh, in a parliament closest to the people, and when uh, parliaments are controlled by an executive, perhaps one needs to resort to referenda. So that's the treatment of the democratic deficit. And now let me come to the question of failure, rulemaking failure. Um, the book identifies and discusses three potential sources of failure. One is executive failure, um, poor leadership either in the organizations or by governments in organizations such as G20. Cultural organizational uh, failure, which is about mindsets and thirdly, cognitive failure, which is failure in the way the experts go about interpreting the data, building their models, uh, uh, treating uncertainties and missing information and so on. And in my view, the cognitive failure is the key failure. It's prior to everything else. If the experts get it wrong in their diagnosis and what they recommend, there's very little chance it's going to be righted later on. Governments don't know enough and there's no challenge to them. So the problem of cognitive failure um, amongst the experts seems to me the prior issue, the first and foremost issue one has to address. Now, when I wrote this book and was thinking about how people might react to it, uh, I was a bit concerned that people wouldn't recognize this problem. And I was very relieved by a report which the Independent Evaluation Office of the IMF put out in January of this year, uh, which, which was on why did the IMF fail. Uh, 
uh, when it came to the international crisis. They didn't spot it, they didn't know what to do about it, and um, this was the diagnosis of the Independent Evaluation Office. Groupthink, intellectual capture, mindsets, inadequate analytic approaches. So basically what they're fingering is cognitive failure. And that, to, to me, is the, uh, is the key issue. And what does one do about it? And why should one uh, think it's so important uh, in the uh, international system? Well, this is why one might think that cognitive failure is going to be pretty widespread. Here, you'll see under the subheadings, shared principle beliefs, common notions of validity, shared causal beliefs, and common problem-solving ventures, you will recognize uh, the, the characteristics of epistemic elites from the literature on epistemic communities. And what I've done is simply to associate uh, a number of cognitive biases from the cognitive uh, literature with these, to these kinds of characteristics. So, for example, if you share causal beliefs, you're likely to suffer from confirmation bias, where you just look for confirming evidence. If you have common notions of validity, you're going to be more prone to herding. And we saw herding very prevalent in the way the financial crisis was approached. Everybody followed Alan Greenspan's lead, essentially. So these characteristics, these problems of bias, seem to me uh, very widespread and very fundamental to what goes wrong in international rulemaking. Now, what does one do to combat these sorts of problems with the experts and the expert groups? It doesn't matter whether one's talking about an expert group like the International Accounting Standards Board or the IMF or the World Health Organization. They all are staffed by experts and they're all subject to these or prone to these sorts of biases. Well, these are the principles um, which come out of the cognitive literature. Um, perhaps the most important is uh, competing, having some competing problem definitions so that people don't frame the problem in a biased way to start with. Raising the stakes is perhaps a little more obscure, but when I think back to my World Bank days, I didn't wrote a large number of papers which went to the board, and my name would be on it. But nevertheless, you are shielded by the institution. You write a report, it comes out as a World Bank report. You're shielded by the institution, and it's the institution's name, the institution's name which is on the line and not your own. Somehow, that sense of professional responsibility has to be got across in, in rulemaking. Now, in practice, uh, these are the kind of procedures um, uh, which are relevant. Um, competitive evaluation, have more than one team looking at the problem. Process tracing, make sure you identify those key elements which turned you in one direction rather than another. Quantify the uncertainties. And also, when you come to evaluate what you've done, Look at whether your causation worked. It's not sufficient your causal reasoning held up. It's not sufficient whether the output worked or not. You want to know whether your causal reasoning uh, held up. This is another way of looking at these procedures. They're in the center column there, and on the left-hand side, uh, it shows what particular characteristics of the experts they address. And on the right-hand side, it, it identifies those particular things these procedures uh, target. So let me come to the conclusions uh, of this book. One of the questions is, are there any easy institutional fixes for failure and for the democracy problem? Uh, one easy fix, which has been very popular over the last couple of years, is G20 can uh, fix it all. I'm very doubtful about this. The membership is too diverse. Not all of its members are uh, interested in rule-based behaving if push comes to shove. And I don't think it's going to provide the kind of cohesion which will address failures. And that seems to be the um, experience over the last year. There's quite a lot of talk, faddish talk, really, about various forms of hybrid organization. The one I've identified here is about how you bring together expert groups uh, with, group, with bodies which have universal membership. And I think the International Panel on Climate Change is quite interesting in that uh, uh, context because it is a small 
um, expert group which pulled networks, experts from around the world, five or 7,000 scientists are involved in any one review, but it has the umbrella of the World Meteorological Organization and the UN uh, Environmental Organization. So it has both experts and uh, old-style universal organizations. Now, there are other types of hybrid. People have talked about sort of private uh, public partnerships in international institutions. But on the whole, I don't, I put, spell out the reasons in the book why I don't think we're going to have convergence on any single one model. Of course, should one not revive the United Nations? Um, one would have to revive the Economic and Social Council, which was meant to be the supreme coordinating body uh, at the end of the war. Um, I don't think there's a slightest chance of that happening. Um, and I think even if one looks at the Security Council, which does play something close to the role originally envisaged, one's only got to look at Libya to see the limitations. Yes, we have a Security Council resolution, but it's capable of multiple interpretations. We have NATO in the lead, but not all NATO countries participating. We have the EU participating, but not all EU members uh, in there. Arab League is important. The Organization of African States has a role, and we have a contact group. So in other words, we have a great big mess of alliances and institutions. And it seems to me likely that that's really the, the future. There's no easy, no easy institutional wand to wave. So in my view, we need to focus on processes rather than institutional fixes. And processes which address the uh, key source of weaknesses, which I've identified, that governments are likely to ignore dissent and expert groups like to live in their own cocoon, and they need to be challenged. Now, this can seem very unambitious, this kind of, uh, let's focus on specifics. It'd be much more glamorous to say, let's have a world parliament or a world government, or let's revive the UN. But I see this setting procedures in place as being a first step in a way of constitutionalizing international rulemaking and a way of making it less prone to failure, more democratic. And if we can do that, then we make international rulemaking more acceptable generally. And this brings me back to where I started, that if we have more acceptable international rulemaking, we'll be able to deal with the challenges ahead and perhaps make the world a more peaceful place. So that's what the book is about, and I'm very happy to answer any more detailed questions you may have. Well, thank you, Frank. I hope there are some questions. I thought what was particularly striking in what Frank had to say was the mixture of realism and forward thinking. And these are subjects where it is very difficult sometimes for people who bring forward wonderful schemes of how to make the better world a better place to root them in reality. And that, I thought, was what Frank did very successfully. But maybe others have different opinions or share those opinions or would like to press him further on his opinions and who would like to begin? Yes, sir. Would it be helpful if, if when people ask questions they could give their names and any affiliation they might have? Thank you. Sure. Um, my name is Bob Talbot Stern. I'm at the Wharton Business School and on sabbatical at Cambridge but I live in Australia, just to confuse you. Um, you said two words together, uh, Greenspan and reputation. <laughs> they, they, they were quite close. And although he may have been using the term reputation a little different, differently than, than you did, Alan Greenspan has stated in After the Fact that he relied on the reputation of businesses and banks and bankers that that would control their excesses. And he says, I think he kind of admitted it, though not taking full blame, that he was wrong. Um, with what has happened in the global financial crisis, and I don't need to focus on that, but I will, <laughs> do you see that with Greenspan or with what the problem was, is it, is it a problem in focusing on what the problem is, if people don't want to admit it, is it a problem in assessing blame, or is it just that 
there are interests as such that they really don't see any problem. This is the business cycle. This will happen. And if that's the point of view, then your efforts are, you're kind of biting around the edges, but uh, they really don't want to listen to you. Yeah, that's a, a very fair question. I, I would put the problem as one of wrong beliefs. You had someone who was a leader in uh, international monetary affairs uh, who had a set of wrong beliefs. He thought it would be a mistake to puncture an asset bubble. And there were various other wrong beliefs um, shared by him and others who were uh, financial leaders in the expert groups of the BIS and so on. And so it gets back to the point I made about the need always to challenge beliefs and to have systems that challenge uh, the established thinking. And there were people well before the financial crisis who said, you're heading for trouble. They criticized the BIS capital adequacy rules as likely to encourage excess leverage or exotic instruments. And uh, this was, well, five years at least before uh, the crisis um, uh, hit. And there were others near at the time who also uh, said, you're heading for trouble. So there were warnings. And the question that, for me, is why were the warnings ignored? And so this gets back to the question of procedures. What kind of procedures would have forced those people devising the rules in the BIS and elsewhere, but the BIS was really in the lead, uh, to take, uh, pay attention to, voice, to voices which were dissenting and say, hey, you're going wrong. You've got it wrong. We've got to allow for other uh, possibilities. And that's what the kind of rather techie procedures I put up there um, about competitive evaluation, process tracing, uh, that's what they're meant to flush out, is to give other voices a much bigger chance to have their say and to try and unpick uh, the orthodox thinking. What are the real assumptions behind it? Are those assumptions valid? Now, of course, at the end of the day, you still want to try for a consensus, and you may ignore the dissenting views. You can't do anything about that. But I think there could have been much greater attention paid to the dissenting voices in the run-up uh, to the crisis. And th it is that the power of the, um, of the uh, leading institutions, say the Fed, or the Fed's leader in Greenspan's case, which one's really got to guard against. Um, and to make sure that the, these voices are challenged. Now, herding was a particular problem here, and that's not always a problem, um, but it very often, very often is, where people ignore information they have because they think somebody else or some other institution knows better, and so they just rely on them. That was clearly very prevalent in the uh, financial crisis, um, and you need procedures to protect against that. Yes, She's going to give you a microphone. Well, I'll start again. My name is Tom Klein. I'm, in another life, I was on the staff of the World Bank with Frank. Um, this is a wonderful introduction, broad introduction to the issues that are you took up, but I wonder if you could take a few minutes to elaborate. Uh, which set of rulemaking got under your skin and sort of drove you to, uh, to, to go to work in this, that you found most uh, failure of rulemaking that you found most irritating and, and um, got, got you rolling on this, and that would give us some a little more specifics. Yes, I, I haven't actually sort of thought what it was. Um, but I think when I've written um, about uh, public policy uh, topics, it's usually because I feel that the academics uh, are not concentrating on what I see as being the real problem. And uh, there's a defect in the academic literature. And I think there has been a gap in the academic literature on expert group failure. For example, 
and I haven't seen much discussion of conciliation issues. So at a theoretical level, I felt there are gaps in the literature which I wanted to, to write about. But in terms of sort of experience, uh, what has got under my skin, I think it's a, this feeling that experts claim to know and there's a lack of control about their claims to know. If you think back to your World Bank days, how rigorous was peer review within the bank? When people sat around to discuss a draft economic report, were they thinking, this is a lousy report, or were they thinking, this is a lousy report, but I don't want to say so because I'll be told my report is lousy when it comes up for next review. And so you have a kind of institutional incentive to pull your punches and you don't get serious review. And so you need these challenge systems to expert groups. And you need people to think, this is a World Bank report, but what's behind it? Who's behind it? Uh, what's the, the thinking which is embodied in the assumptions? How good is the data? I mean, if you think about IMF and World Bank reporting on China, for example, how much discussion has there been of the quality of Chinese data? or on inflation, or growth, or whatever. Maybe there's been a lot, but I suspect not so much. So data sources, the reliability of data sources, are very often uh, under-examined. Uh, Modeling is under-examined. I mean, we were both involved in various model-building exercises in the World Bank, and my goodness, they were crude. Now, of course, they're much more sophisticated today, but you still find very key assumptions embedded in very sophisticated models. And for example, when I look at the IPCC work on climate change, it makes a claim that a lot of models all point in the same direction. So the claim is that the heterogeneity of what is going on is confirmatory evidence in itself. But are these models really heterogeneous in their assumptions, or do they share some common assumptions in the way they're constructed? How well do they perform? We don't really know, looking at the uh, IPCC reports. So I think that one needs much higher standards, and it's this, I think, what got under my skin were the claims of experts to know when the basis on which they made this knowledge claim really was very shaky. And they were relying, let me say, on the institutional name to have clout and influence rather than on the quality of the analysis. Can I follow up on this? Sure. Uh, how well do you think the operations evaluation department of the bank has dealt with this issue of peer review which you mentioned? I, I really don't know the answer to that because um, uh, I have not followed their um, work in detail over the years. I know of one case where um, they have tried um, to raise questions and it was just ignored uh, by the institution. There, there is an institutional problem with these evaluation offices that they are not, they don't have line responsibility and so they can be ignored by those with line responsibility. And I think this is the fate of those sorts of offices, so that even if they do good work, they may get ignored. But I suspect that not all the work is good. But I certainly found it interesting that the IMF Independent Evaluation Office, which is a much newer office than the World Bank's office, was the one to finger this problem uh, about the way the IMF goes about its work. Thank you. Um, I think, Frank, that uh, you have an, an erring instinct from raising difficult, inconvenient, and rather unpleasant questions that we're going to have to deal with as time moves on. I'd like to get it away from the financial, about which I know nothing, very little. My name, by the way, is Geoffrey Newman, and I am director of the Earth Charter in the UK. And uh, I think there are two elements that I'd like to contextualize what I ask in. One is the issue of globalization generally. And the second, specifically, 
is the speed of change of communications, the speed of decision making, whether in nuclear reactors or in, in financial terms, because of computerization. The speed of decisions about what to do about a body that is inconveniently placed in a, um, Osama bin Laden in, in uh, uh, Pakistan. The difficulty, therefore, of, and I partially have in mind, um, obviously, today's different news, one about how much was known about the 7-7 bombers before um, the attack and where the decisions were made, the speed at which people are having to make decisions, um, which have, especially where interventions are at a very um, small level, but with huge implications. So um, catching up on um, procedures um, at the moment, the other last bit of news that was um, on uh, World at One today was an international law expert talking about um, legal aspects of what happened with Osama bin Laden. And what was very clear was uh, that international law to deal with issues at the moment is going to uh, need to change in quantum leaps and it's not going to happen. Um, speed therefore seems to be together with globalization um, to raise very very critical issues in relation to what you're saying. No I, I agree with that and um, I think I say in the book or I've said in commenting on the book that all the procedures I set out whether it's process tracing or registering your uncertainties all of these add to delay of decision taking and uh, that is a cost of these procedures. Um, to me it's a cost worth carrying because the quality of your decisions should be better at the end of the day. Um, I give the example from the Yom Kippur War where an alternative view might have led to greater preparedness um, uh, and uh, but I, I think your point is right. Politicians have to make uh, decisions quickly, and they don't like dealing with uncertainties. They don't want someone to come along and say, this is my view, but I'm only 50-50 likely to be right. Um, politicians don't want to hear that. Um, and so that's a real, these are real-world problems. But never, and I think one has to recognize them. So one's never going to have complete procedural rationality. It's not going to happen. And I, I acknowledge that. But I think some steps in the direction I'm talking about, uh, that's all I, all I would push for. Uh, hi, my name's uh, Andrew Harrison. I um, do processor engineering for a, a multinational financial organization. Um, one thing that immediately uh, springs to mind, um, I guess to give a pertinent example, a couple of years ago, um, it was, uh, German policy in, in the EU, they were starting to tout changes to the weighting of, of voting in issues in the EU. And one possible way was the populations of the different countries within the EU would weight the strength of their vote. To which um, a, a member of the policy executive, I'm not sure whether it was a, a foreign minister, uh, stated, if you hadn't killed so many Poles during World War II, our population would be much larger now and our weighted vote would be much higher. So no thank you, we, we're really uninterested in that. And it's something I've seen a lot. All parties in a process can agree that the outcomes from that process is, is very poor. Um, and yet when you go to change the process itself, um, it's almost the process for changing processes are, are even more impossible and even more harder because these processes have kind of organically grown and, and they are that way for a reason and people have vested interest in them. So I was wondering how much thought or your opinion on the process of changing the process. Yeah, I, I, it's a very difficult question because we're all familiar with sort of theories of path dependency and it's very difficult to get people to, to change. Um, I think that the... Um, I think there's no, no, easy, no easy answer. I mean, one answer is you wait for a cataclysm, things to go badly wrong, and then, then you can get some change. Um, it's unfortunate if that happens. Um, but 
but I think there are some promising signs. I mean, the, the WHO, it may have made mistakes in handling avian flu or swine flu, but they were not total disasters. But nevertheless, it is reviewing, it's got a high-level panel uh, to review its procedures. So there's a receptivity. Uh, and also, I think there is increasing awareness of the sort of cognitive problems, the problems with expert groups that I'm talking about. And the IPCC is also having uh, a review by the International Academy of Sciences because it realizes it's not producing the kind of evidence-based policymaking that it's meant to. Um, so I think you can get some, some progress, but it, it is true what you say, that there are resistances. And um, they, it'll always be, there'll always be imperfections in the system. I don't know about the specific example you're, you're mentioning about population waiting in the EU, how good a system it would be. Um, it certainly gets to very basic political issues. That, um, Christopher, you probably have more views than I do on that. Would, that. would it be a good idea to give greater weight to population size in EU political processes? I, <clears throat> I tend to think it would. Yes, I do. because. I, I think you know Germany and Luxembourg are, are not equal, but and the system is always tending to be biased in favour of the of the smaller countries. Mm. But the question then is, how does one get change if that's the direction of change one wants to get? And that's that's very difficult until one has either a very prolonged period of dysfunction or some serious malfunction. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, Sheila Page, um, work on economics of trade. Uh, two questions, if I may. First, I would like to pursue the, the challenge, uh, how you do it question more, because I'd like the first question on this. You, you've quoted the, the Basel arrangements, not the BIS arrangements, but the BIS itself, in its uh, annual reports, has challenged the IMF view throughout the four years preceding the crisis, as in fact it did in the 1970s crisis. So those of us who follow these things knew that that was the report to read. And but it didn't do any good. The challenge of one or two of the UN agencies did as well. Again, no one took any notice. Mm. I mean, unless you have a process by which the challenge is incorporated into an expert group which, as you say, is not able to accept it, I don't see that a challenge process in itself is going to be any use. Which brings me to my second question, which is about an alternative way. Because to me, what has succeeded during the crisis is the uh, trade system. There has not been a descent into protection on the things which are covered by the trade system. There has on services and on investment which are not. So that for whatever reason, and this is what I'd like your views on, that system which has all of the faults it's undemocratic, no democratic process, very much an expert group, if you consider the Geneva group an expert group. Uh, and what it has had on its side is what I would offer instead of a challenge process, which is law, a straight legal system. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's, um, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I think that uh, the fact that you have a legal system for review, a uh, trade disputes panel, I think is extremely important uh, for the credibility uh, and functionality of the trade system. And I, one of the points I make in the book is the importance of judicial review systems generally. There are an awful lot of rule makers and forums where rules are agreed where there's no possibility of judicial review. So there's, I think, in the uh, current account would be that in the well, as a whole, you have more than a hundred, well in excess of a hundred judicial bodies of one sort or another in tribunals. But do they provide it for a coherent system of judicial review? No, they don't. So I would want to have a system of judicial review alongside every decision maker as an absolutely fundamental point. Because if you look at domestic rule makers or domestic expert bodies, what are they afraid of? On the whole, they're not afraid of politicians, but they are afraid of judicial review. That's what they want to avoid. So I would certainly have them in place. And if to mention the EU, I would certainly like to see commission decisions subject at the point at which they're made 
uh, to judicial review possibilities. Um, so I think judicial review is important. Uh, I take your point that the BIS, to some extent, was on the side of the angels in the run-up to um, uh, the financial crisis. That was the place where reservations and questions were voiced. And I mentioned that um, uh, in the book. The question is that how do you incorporate these challenges in the procedures? And of course, in theory, it would have been bodies like G10 uh, or G7, which would have said, look, I'm hearing one thing from you, the IMF, uh, which I'm a governor, and I'm hearing another thing from you, the uh, BIS, let's sort it out. Um, but they didn't do it. Uh, so it's a defect, if you, if you like, of um, executive, uh, of the leadership. And that is, I identify that, that is one of the sources of failure. But, um, And one just has to acknowledge that. Um, can one do better in future? Well, I would have thought that in the light of this experience, they will pay more attention to dissenting views, but maybe not. Uh, maybe it'll go on. Um, it, is, it is very difficult. Um, one of the characteristics of expert groups, which is rather different from the other ones, is this uh, uh, point about being involved in a common a problem-solving venture or com common endeavor, practical endeavor. And that means that the people involved, the central bankers or the finance ministers, they want consensus. They want to go along and find solutions, and they don't want people to throw spanners in the work. It's very different from an academic group where everybody likes to dissent and throw knives and uh, uh, sort of challenge and have a different view. Uh, when you're engaged in a practical task, then you, the incentive is to, to submerge your differences. And uh, that's a very real, very real issue. Um, the upside of that kind of group is that they draw on practical experience. There's a different type of knowledge involved. And perhaps they've been over-reliant on, well, those economists are telling me I've got it wrong, but I know from my experience I know best maybe they're going to be a little more questioning about their own um, practical experience, maybe. Um, but I, it's a problem, I agree. Did, did I see... Okay, sorry, I thought I'd... Okay, you go. And then the lady at the back. Halfway up, and then the lady at the back. Thank you. Uh, my name is Juan Moreda, and I am a student. What uh, you have said has reminded me of a case in which an organ which had failed was tried to refund it, which was uh, remade, which was the, the United Nations Commission on Human Rights, which uh, arrived, came to a stagnation and was changed into a council with different composition, different rules. Do you think the change was uh, bold enough, was good enough, that it really made a difference, or it would be more, more of the same thing? Well, I don't discuss that sort of issue in this book. I did touch on it on my previous book about the rise of the unelected. Um, I think the, the first body uh, was a disaster. There were just uh, countries involved um, that had absolutely no respect for human rights at all. And to some extent, that's still a problem with the new body. Um, when the new body was, before the new body was set up, there was a report by a bunch of ex-international civil servants and diplomats. And they looked at it in the way diplomats tend to look at these things. Are you better off with such a body <coughs> without such a body? I think my answer would have been it's better to be without such a body than to have organized hypocrisy or just um, uh, total grandstanding or whatever goes on. Um, their view was that you're always better off um, with an institution. And I'm just opposed to thinking that there are these kinds of institutional fixes for uh, serious underlying problems. Yes, right at the back. Um, Claire Jones, Central Banking Publications. Um, I'd just like to come back to your point on central bankers and finance ministers about there being 
consensus building within the institutions. In a sense, I think, particularly with regard to monetary policy, it goes beyond the institutions themselves and to markets as well. I think markets want a consensus view from the central bank. I mean, you've seen recently Bernanke started giving press conferences, and one of the big reasons for that is that you've got a lot of dissent among the regional Fed presidents, and that's confusing markets, and they want Bernanke to come out and give them the consensus view because then they've got more, more of an understanding of what the Fed's trying to do with monetary policy. So how do you deal with that? Um, how do you account for the views of someone like Bill White if you're a policymaker and the markets are demanding um, you to come out with a, a certain view on something or at least some sort of certainty about what you're doing? Um, the other thing is about academia's role in all this. I mean, in terms of central banking, I think there was a lot, a lot of academics that caught up in the hubri that surrounded inflation target. And I think, in a sense, the relationship between a lot of academics and central bankers supported that. Um, how can we ensure that academia provides a check on what the policymakers are doing? Yeah, on the first question, the markets like a consensus view. Well, one shouldn't always give markets what they want. Uh, markets should form their own views. And uh, I think it's very important for central banks not always to think that they should be ones giving the lead to markets. Um, saying it's a basic thing. I'm not sure that Bernanke's uh, uh, policy of being more open is uh, a way of giving a census view so much as being willing to expose if there are differences of view on the Fed board. Um, I think it is a policy of openness, and if there are disagreements, I would expect him to say so. Um, but uh, so I, I would interpret it in that way. But certainly, I think when central bankers have to be very careful about uh, putting themselves in a position where they are trying to control markets or give them leads. Um, Yes, up to a point, one wants to um, influence ex market expectations, but only up to a point. I think it's a very, it's a very difficult area, um, as you know, um, but I, I would be cautious about it. Um, about the academics, um, well, I have to choose my words carefully. Um, academics like to be consulted by governments, and. Um, they like to be paid by governments and international institutions as consultants. It's nice to say, oh, I consult with the World Bank, and it's nice to pocket the paycheck. And therefore, there is a, a big incentive to provide the institution with the information you think they want to hear, or the views they want to hear. So I think that's a very awkward nexus. Um, and I think one has to structure outside advice probably in rather different ways than happens now. Um, you have brought a very strong argument uh, on uh, process tracing or in other terms on processual analysis. Um, I believe that processual analysis is uh, a very time-consuming and expensive method of analysis or evaluation, and it does require a very high level of expertise and capabilities. Do you foresee any dangers if this analysis is carried out by personnel who do not have the adequate level of experience or expertise? And the uh, second sub-question, um, based on your argument on institutional fixes, um, you strongly arg uh, argued for processes, the process tracing. Um, literature on institutionalism argues that institutionalism is both a process and proper variable. So do you, think, do you suggest that um, institutions should also possess certain properties to be able to support your arguments, and if they do, uh, what would you suggest in uh, order of importance, such as, for example, let's say, 
competence, high skill, competence um, of expertise, of personnel, human capability, etc., etc. Well, process tracing is difficult, but I'm not sure it is that difficult to make an improvement on what we've got now. And I give a practical example in the book of um, a process tracing undertaken by the European Food Standards Agency in looking at uh, how they approached uh, food poisoning, to what extent it was associated with chickens, I think, chicken meat. And um, that report by the experts um, did identify the data problems, different approach ways that can be approached, different problems with those models, um, and then it made very clear which uh, um, path it was going to follow and why. And then it came up with a very wide range of uncertainties because it was probably a rather rigorous study. Now, at the end of the day, the politicians are probably not going to like that conclusion that the incidence of association between uh, food poisoning and poultry production is huge. I mean, it could be I forget what the figures were now, but it was a difference between 500,000 and 20 million or something like that. Politicians don't like that kind of finding. But nevertheless, that struck me as being the kind of process tracing uh, that one would want. And I think it can be done. Uh, maybe not to the sort of standard you might want, but nevertheless to a much higher standard or to a much greater degree than, than happens now. What kind of capabilities do you want or properties of the organization? I think the basic issue for organizations is to what extent they want that expertise in-house and to what extent they've drawn it from outside and they are the expert managers and the managers of processes. I think that's the key question. I think it's interesting that bodies like EFSA uh, are small and they're managing, uh, say, competing evaluators or experts from outside and that, I think, should be compared with, say, the IMF with its 5,000 staff or the World Bank with its 10,000 staff that are trying to internalize that expertise. I think there's something to be said for um, uh, externalizing the expertise and focusing on the managing the processes. Well, I think we have one more question. I was going to say we have had ten questions, but we can end with the eleventh. Yes, uh, it's uh, in regards to institutional fixes. Um, we understand that the institutions like IMF and their process should be fixed or changed. And uh, recently, the um, American Congress and the, and the financial establishment demanded the increase by one billion in American debt. And um, with respect to with this growing budget deficit in the United States and also in the UK, would the international financial institutions like IMF or the World Bank be able to support the next financial crisis? Well, I think, and I say this in the book, that there's always been a problem for international institutions in dealing with their largest members. And the IMF is always pussyfooted around the United States. It's pussyfooting now around China as well. And um, you always get that. And that means that they don't tell truth to power, to use that um, expression. Uh, and that's a problem. Uh, it's very difficult to go to your largest shareholder or your large shareholders and say, you, you're doing wrong, and we're going to put you up uh, before other countries and tell, say, publicly that we think your policies are wrong. And I think that is a problem. Um, and I'm not sure that one can do very much about it. Um, again, it's a, it's a, to some extent, it's a procedural issue. Um, because if the institutional incentives within the institutions are not to say what needs to be said about the US deficit, then who is going to say it? and maybe that the institution needs, again, perhaps to go outside, to get some outside views who are prepared to say it. Um, so I would look, again, for somewhat of a procedural uh, type of solution. But I think it is, a, it is an issue, uh, and I'm not sure there's any very neat, uh, neat answer to it. 
I think that is a, an appropriate moment to end because it, uh, the question does draw attention to one of the most intractable issues of all. If you have a, an organization comprising a group of countries that are more or less of uh, equal size, or at any rate within a framework, they all feel an interest in the efficacy of the rules. The dangers arise when you have countries which are so big that they feel that they're not constrained by the same rules as others. That has always been the case with the United States. Um, but for various reasons, the United States has often been nonetheless willing to abide by rules. I suspect the problems will be much greater with China that hasn't played a part in creating the structures um, and that hasn't had a tradition of uh, the same sort of internationalist tradition. Um, perhaps, on the other hand, if we have a world in which there are several very large states, the United States, China, India, Indonesia, all of a sort of different grandeur to the generality, that might turn out to be a, a balancing factor, but it'll be some time before we get to that position. I said at the beginning that I thought that Frank's great gift was to to marry big ideas and broad visions with practical reality. And I think that's what he's demonstrated most particularly uh, during his very measured and modest, in the sense that he never claimed to have an answer when he didn't, his very measured and modest response to questions. And I would like to thank him very much for a very stimulating evening. Thank you.